Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Living in a coastal town, I think a lot, maybe more than the average person, about my town's infrastructure in the face of climate change. Today's guest has a lot to say about infrastructure and how we make it climate safe. And stick around after the interview. Shreya Dravasala has another example of the Trump administration sidelining science. I just got back from a trip to California, where I spent a lot of time in traffic and a lot of time thinking about freeways, highways, and in particular, bridges. In the Bay Area, obviously everyone knows the Golden Gate Bridge. But every day, about twice as many cars cross the Bay Bridge, which connects San Francisco to Oakland. It may not be as beautiful, but it's incredibly functional. 260,000 cars cross it daily. I learned from my West Coast friends that the eastern span of the Bay Bridge in Oakland was rebuilt within the last 10 years at a cost of $6.4 billion and almost six years of work. I also learned that sea level rise is expected to permanently inundate several areas of the newly renovated sections, and the taxpayers will have to pay additional money to protect those sections from rising seas. How does this happen? How are engineers and city planners and architects not taking climate change into account when they plan projects this massive and consequential? When I got back from my trip, I knew just who to talk to about these questions. Someone who spent a significant chunk of her career studying climate change, resilience, and infrastructure. Dr. Suzanne Moser directs her own research and consulting business dedicated to helping clients understand climate resilience. She also holds research faculty appointments in the Environmental Studies Department at Antioch University, New England, and in the Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning Department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. In 2018, she was one of the facilitators of California's Climate Safe Infrastructure Working Group, which was established by law to bring scientists, engineers, and architects together to develop recommendations for the state on how forward-looking climate science can be factored into infrastructure planning. And full disclosure, she's also a former colleague with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Dr. Moser joined me to discuss the failing grades of our national and state infrastructure, how California is leading the way on climate-safe infrastructure but still has a long way to go, and what percent of new buildings these days are designed with climate change in mind. Spoiler, her answer might make you nervous. Susie, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Great. So I wanted to start with the basics. When you talk about infrastructure, um, do you mean, I mean, people think of roads and bridges, but are there other types of infrastructure that people might not be aware of? Yeah, it's a really good question. In the efforts I've been involved in, we, we've not only been thinking about sort of these physical assets that you just mentioned, like the bridges and the roads and the culverts and things like that, train tracks. Um, but we actually think of infrastructure as a system. And what I mean by that is, you know, think about a, a bridge. You can have that piece of metal and wood or concrete connecting two pieces of land. And it's really important to think about what happens on the two sides of the piece of land as well. It's really important to think about the people who use it and to what benefit they use it. 
it's really important to think about what institutions govern the use and the building, the design and construction of that particular uh, piece of infrastructure. So we, you know, think of it more in this broader term because it allows us to have more points of intervention of making sure these uh, pieces of infrastructure get built right. We also include in this natural infrastructure or sometimes called green infrastructure. So, um, you know, things like wetlands or forests um, that actually provide enormous services to us. Um, so it's, it's really the natural and built infrastructure, including even virtual structures like, you know, the internet. Most of us are dependent on cell phone towers that connect via the ether, right? So it's all of those things uh, combined and all the underlying structures, finances and workforce issues and everything else that supports building that infrastructure. So a little more complicated than our typical right. thinking. So that kind of leads me to my, my next question, which is what does infrastructure have to do with climate change and what is climate safe or um climate smart infrastructure. Let me first address the issue of what infrastructure has to do with climate change. I think there are really two ways in which we might want to think about that. Um, one is that depending on what kind of infrastructure we build, it can actually add to the causes. So if we, for example, continue to build highways, we will basically make it possible for people to keep driving fossil fuel driven cars and contribute to climate change, right? So that's one really important aspect. But of course, every infrastructure out in the elements is exposed to wildfires, to floods, to high winds, you know, think of those cell phone towers I just mentioned. Um, they topple, they get cracked in, in big storms like tornadoes or whatever the case may be. So um, it's both the causes and the impacts um, and of course, there's sort of a, a third dimension that's related to that. To the extent we build infrastructure in a way that can withstand these severe weather events and extreme events from climate change, um, then we are, as a community, much more able to actually respond quickly and effectively to whatever disaster might come. Think of you know, the phone lines going out during a disaster. Well, communication is one of the most important things you need in order to coordinate emergency response. So if you don't have that kind of infrastructure, that's really problematic. So really, it touches on the front end and the middle and the back end of climate change um, in all those ways. And so what's the difference between climate resilient, climate smart? You know, we use the term climate safe infrastructure in uh, a report that we can talk about that I worked on last year in, in California. But really, for us, what that meant is that we are, you know, building infrastructure that does not add to the causes of climate change. So helps with the mitigation end, the reduction of emissions, and is um, built in a way that reduces those negative impacts, consequences, um, and does so in a way that does not only benefit some people, so in other words, addresses social equity issues. Right now, the biggest potholes are in the poorest communities. And those are always the people who suffer the most in, in those types of disasters. So we wanted to make sure that as we think about making our infrastructure better adapted to climate change, that we think from the get-go about how does this help the most disadvantaged communities? How can we help make them more resilient and have a better future? How would you grade current U.S. infrastructure today? 
<laughs> you know, I don't grade them, but the American Society of Civil Engineers does actually on a regular basis. And, you know, people might not know this, but uh, in 2017, which is the last time I believe we had a nationwide grading exercise for our infrastructure, we came out with a D plus. Wow. That's pretty bad. <laughs> Different states update their their grading of bridges and tunnels and you know all all the kind of infrastructure we talked about so far on a interim basis and like we we just you know got a new update for California bridges came out C minus roads with a D transit infrastructure C minus I mean it's not great at all. <laughs> What's really wonderful about these uh, efforts in grading our infrastructure is that basically the ASCE says here are the the steps you can take to lift your infrastructure from a say D plus to a C plus or you know to a B or something like that. So obviously that typically requires uh, massive investment in our infrastructure, but all of us who have had um, I don't know an encounter with a pothole might actually appreciate that kind of investment. <laughs> Right, right. Tell me a little bit about the um, the work that you did um, in actual practice. You you got climate scientists, engineers, architects, social scientists, everyone together for this project. In the real world, will that be an easy thing to do, or will engineers and architects kind of have their own ideas about things, or do you think that we can that can easily sort of flow moving forward? Well, the word easily is what trips me up in your question. There's nothing easy about this. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, if, if we just had those quick band-aid fixes, right? Um, no, I, you know, in some ways, this, what's interesting to me about this is um, the question of how to connect climate science to practice is actually not a new one. It's a specific and, and concrete one that California asked us to focus on, but there has been a fairly, at least over the course of my career, sort of trend toward looking at how and under what circumstances and in what ways can science become more useful and actionable to practitioners, right? It's not just we, we create science, we publish it in obscure journals and, you know, they end up on a shelf and nobody ever reads it. It's actually trying to bring that expertise to bear on real world challenges. And I think the more we're headed into climate change, the, you know, we just don't have the luxury to not use the best knowledge. But that's a, it's still a new thing for many scientists, for many engineers to do. You know, we get trained in these disciplinary silos and we talk amongst ourselves. We don't know how to bring these things into society or to other professions, to the applied sciences like engineering and architecture. And so there is a learning process. And, you know, one of the uh, aspects of the work that we had in, in the AB 2800 working group was to look at what are those, if you will, softer obstacles between scientists and engineers and architects working together. So I'll give you a, a very concrete example. Um, the state of California has rules about, you know, basically their staff going to travel to conferences. And it's very difficult for state employees to just go, oh, there's an interesting climate conference. Let me just go to that. Well, it's very difficult for them to get permission to do that, you know, and you can see how this could be potentially abused. But when you make it so hard for people to interact, 
Well, they just don't, they just miss the chance to build the relationships, to learn from each other, to hear what are your actual problems and what do I have that could help you with that. And, and one of the recommendations in the report is that we actually make those obstacles a lot smaller. So there's more opportunities for people to come together. California, as for an example, has an adaptation forum every two years. Why can that not be a forum where scientists and engineers and architects are brought together in panels, in working groups, in, in sessions, you know, even as a side event where they can just sit together and talk to each other to each other about what they're learning and what they need so that the scientists can do the right science and the engineers learn what's the latest. And you know that is sort of the beginning to form these relationships. I have worked on this issue of science policy and practice interactions for the last 25 years. And I tell you, if that, that relationship building doesn't happen, that science won't flow. It's absolutely essential. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. You'll also find a link to the Climate Safe Infrastructure Working Group report and more info about what Susie is currently working on. Now let's get back to our interview. So the, the other aspect of this is that we we don't have a lot of time. So how how quickly can can this happen? Um, how I mean, how quickly can you even update or create new infrastructure that's climate safe? Infrastructure is being updated pretty much all the time. I mean, there's sort of the building the new stuff and then there is the maintenance of that, right? And, you know, the, the thing that we always forget is that if we don't take forward-looking climate science into account, you're going to have to upgrade and repair and maintain your bridge, your tunnel, your roads a lot sooner. So there is, a, a, I almost want to say there is a time-saving and a money-saving into investing in the building of relationships to enable that exchange so that we build these roads in a better way so that you actually don't have that expense. Do you have um, any examples where infrastructure has been built without thinking about climate change and then the flip side of that, where infrastructure has been built with climate change in mind? I would say to you that 90... 9% of all infrastructure currently being built does not take climate change into account. An engineer can only do his or her work um, and get liability insurance for doing that work when they adhere to professional standards. And professional standards right now say you got to use those standards that look backwards, which is completely crazy, right? But that is the current legal situation of, around liability and whatnot. There are a few instances where, you know, in buildings, people uh, really try to go to extremely high standards of energy efficiency and uh, green buildings and reducing materials and all that stuff that, you know, that is important. The 
health benefits, having cooler buildings. I mean, all of those are not just good for reducing emissions, but also good for sort of protecting people from extreme heat. So it works both ways, right? It, it helps both with climate uh, mitigation, as we call it, the reduction of emissions, and with adaptation, with pre protecting you from the impacts. Um, so there are a few examples like that. They're totally voluntary. Um, and typically this is where someone is motivated to do that. They see the writing on the wall and they want to just be on the, on the leading edge of that. And what's really wonderful about those voluntary efforts is they tend to set the stage and they, they begin to, you know, lead a trend and many, eventually the mainstream standards catch up with those, um, progressive trends. And then, you know, <laughs> that'll become the new standard. So Susie, how did you get hooked on infrastructure? <laughs> um, I am not an infrastructure expert, but I am an expert in bringing people together to talk to each other across disciplinary and, and you know, academic policy sort of lines. And um, so my colleague, Julian Fincy Hart from uh, the U.S. Geological Survey and I just put in our hat and said, you know, we can facilitate this group. We can help them think um, broadly and comprehensively about that. And apparently we were convincing enough that we got that job. What has to happen? It's really daunting. What you've just been telling me is that it's a big problem and there's not just one quick fix solution. It involves a lot of different people, different professions coming together and having sort of a shared understanding. Were people that were involved in this working group bummed out by the end of it that it's just such a complex problem. I mean, I'm just wondering how people cope when they actually really understand the, the full extent of how important and how difficult creating climate safe infrastructure is. Let me just put it this way. When you talk to a number of climate scientists who've been really dedicating their lives to understanding the Earth system, a really complex thing. And if you're talking to engineers whose mindset is about solving problems, you don't easily flummox these people. <laughs> they very quickly saw and, and in fact said, you know, we need to take a systemic look at this problem. We cannot just focus on how to feed a bunch of data into a bunch of plans. They, they very quickly realize that this problem is much bigger than that. I think what's much more daunting is to, you know, how do you translate what 15, 16 people in one room working together closely, what they come up with, how do you translate that into thousands of engineers and scientists working together on the outside? And this is where institutions and standards and training and universities where all of that comes in right most engineers still go through graduate education without ever having a class in climate science i mean that's criminal in my mind but that is an opportunity where every university that has an engineering department can actually help professional societies are working in various ways and there's many of them and many 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 different standards so some of them have started to take this seriously and are working on, on updating their standards creating climate sensitive um, engineering standards so you know things are happening I think there's also you know in in architecture and in engineering in general people are thinking really hard about adaptive designs if we build it in a way that gives us a, a 
solid bases from which we can build up and adjust later. I mean, th those are frontiers of engineering that are really exciting and um, people are interested in figuring that out. So I see movement in a lot of places. Again, I cannot emphasize enough how we don't have time to lose, um, but but I feel like it's it's beginning to happen. Going back to California for a minute, what are the, the follow-up steps from the report? The report obviously was you know mandated by an assembly bill, and so we had a requirement spelled out in the law to brief the legislature and brief the Strategic Growth Council, which is sort of a cross-agency coordinating council. And we did that at the end of last year. And now that we have a new administration in the state of California with Governor Newsom, we actually are briefing state agencies with their new heads. Just yesterday, we had a briefing of the Office of Planning and Research and the new head for climate and energy within the Natural Resources Agency. So basically, we're trying to help the new folks to come up to speed as quickly as possible to understand what we did and what are possibilities for moving forward. Um, in fact, we have 10 recommendations in the report and each one had sort of a whole list of, here's some immediate quick things you can do to get, to move on this particular reg uh, uh, recommendation. And so we're hoping that that takes, it goes forward uh, in the legislature. There's uh, work underway, which I don't know the latest status of, but we heard about it in November when we did the briefing to them of uh, trying to get a, a constitutional, state constitutional amendment passed that would build uh, an infrastructure fund um, to actually invest in that kind of infrastructure. And of course, what happened with Paradise is is very much occupying everyone's mind right now. How do you rebuild a, an entire town? Um, which is a big infrastructure question and a complicated one. And so that both focuses the mind and it also distracts them from a report like ours because people don't have houses and they need immediate help. So I can understand that. But, but trying to get our thinking into, you know, the to the folks who are working on those kinds of challenges is where we see the openings. Um, Coastal Commission is working on uh, adaptation guidance for homeowners, you know, there's a, an opportunity. Well, Susie, I'm feeling optimistic that California once again might lead the way and um, and provide a, a new type of infrastructure method of, of working, or I don't know what you would call it. But it, it, it sounds like the, the work that you did with the Climate Safe Infrastructure Working Group has the potential to have some real impact. Yeah, I, I really hope so. And I, I, I'm confident as well that some elements of this in, in some fa form or fashion will continue. And, you know, the, the amazing thing, um, people can find all the information we produced and, and used during um, our process on the natural resources website still. You know, I encourage everyone to go um, look for paying it forward and, and looking for those resources and use them in whatever work they're doing. So. Yeah. Thanks for this opportunity to share about it. Yeah, that's great. And I will include the links to that on our um, on our webpage so that great. people can easily find that. But thanks so much, Susie. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest news from an administration that's really cracking down and getting tough on people trying to cure cancer. Our Shreya Dervasula has the story. 
If you've never lived in the D.C. area or you've never been a scientist, you might not know an interesting fact about the many, many scientists who work at our federal government at agencies like the Centers for Disease Control or the National Institutes of Health. The fact is, many of these scientists were not born in the United States. Many of them have studied at American colleges and universities. Many have gotten visas and sponsorships and green cards to stay on and contribute because they're just that good and we need their talent. At the National Institutes for Health, for example, scientists research infectious diseases, chronic conditions, personalized medicine, and make breakthroughs that have helped all of us live longer and healthier lives. The NIH is the largest funder of biomedical research in the world, with more than 20,000 employees. And people are in and out of its facilities all the time. Uh, grad students, job applicants, researchers at other institutions who are invited to share their work. Basically, an agency like NIH is kind of like an international house of scientists. No one cares where you're from as long as your research is good. Until recently. A new policy has security stopping folks who visit the NIH campus and demanding proof of citizenship. So far, according to the Washington Post, a prospective candidate for a job was escorted off the premises before he could even begin his interview. And an invited speaker on brain research was held up for an hour filling out forms. The latter has regularly visited NIH to speak about his research and says he's never had a problem until now. According to the Post, the NIH is now, quote, apparently following protocols used by federal security agencies that deal with highly sensitive or classified information and require top-secret security clearances for their employees. Visitors to those facilities must disclose their citizenship, and foreign nationals are provided with a badge different from those worn by U.S. citizens, security officials said, end quote. While Francis Collins, the director of NIH, has issued apologies to the people affected, and to the entire NIH community, it's unclear whether these security measures will still remain in place, hampering the free sharing of scientific information among colleagues. And it shouldn't matter if someone is a world-class scientist. Nobody should be harassed by undue scrutiny because of their background or their citizenship. I want to give the last word on this policy to the executive director of UCS, Kathy Rest. She wrote an eloquent blog on our site in reaction to this news. She says, quote, Science at the NIH is a collaborative enterprise that thrives on diversity and has nothing to do with citizenship. What's happening at NIH is not good for patients and for their visitors to the campus. It is not good for ensuring a future pool of talented NIH researchers. And it is certainly not good for public health. It's not good for people who rely on the world-class science and research at NIH. Who knows where the next scientific breakthrough, innovation, or great idea will come from? Maybe from some foreign-born researcher toiling over a data set. Maybe from that Iranian graduate student who was turned away from NIH when he arrived for a job interview with an invitation. What are the consequences if the U.S. no longer welcomes scientists from other nations to our labs or subjects them to undue scrutiny and interrogation? We all lose. Good science does not depend on passports, nationality, or citizenship, end quote. When federal officials deny scientists the right to collaborate and work together, they're only sidelining science.
Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Susie Moser. Sidelining Science by Shreya Dravasala. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.